Well, all right, I think we'll get started. Today we want to deal with chapter 49 of Genesis. We're near the end of the book, obviously. And um, I, over the break, I was thinking about how I want to deal with Genesis 49 because it's, uh, it's kind of a difficult chapter because it's the blessings of Jacob upon each one of his sons. And uh, how we look at those blessings um, is, is important. So I thought I'd give you a couple of charts to help us um, hopefully understand it in the short time we always have together on a, on a Wednesday. But chapter 49, now back to finishing Genesis. As you might remember, and it seems like months instead of just a couple of weeks, but the end of chapter 48, um, Joseph brings his two sons into Jacob's. Um, Jacob is old. Jacob is dying. And so he wants Jacob, the patriarch of the clan. They're all now in Goshen. Remember that? I'm just summarizing so you're connecting with that. Uh, the entire clan is now in the safety and protective custody, in a way, of, of Joseph in Goshen. The Pharaoh has approved that. And so now Joseph wants his two sons uh, blessed by Jacob. Now, this is a quiz. What are the names of his two sons? Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh. Good. They, uh, uh, Joseph's wife was an Egyptian woman, but his two sons are given Hebrew names, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, this just a summary to make sure you're making all these connections. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob, but because of Reuben's adultery, which takes us back quite a few chapters, he lost that right. So therefore, the firstborn uh, privileges go now to Joseph, and that's by Jacob's choice. And so what he does, that is Joseph, is he brings his two boys into Jacob, and Jacob, it would assume, would bless Manasseh because he was the firstborn of the two sons of Joseph. But he doesn't. He blesses Ephraim. And Joseph says, no, Dad, no. And Jacob says, no, I'm blessing Ephraim, which is sort of the way God has done things. Remember, uh, Isaac, huh? it seems like God is not always blessing the firstborn. And so in this case, they receive, they, Joseph's two boys, receive the double blessing. And uh, without getting into detail, because we're not going to study that at this point anyway for quite a long time, that's into Joshua. But when the land grants are made after the conquest under Joshua, Ephraim and Manasseh together get the largest grant of land. And that's uh, beyond our study, but that is fulfilled then. So then chapter 39, uh, sorry, 49 is where Jacob takes the initiative. And we read, Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together. Then I might tell you what will happen to you in the days to come, in the latter days, literally. Now, that phrase, in the latter days, in the last days, it can be translated a number of different ways has created a lot of discussion. It really has, because it is used in the Bible. This is the first time it's used in the Bible. It is used in the Bible to describe and to focus upon the promises God makes. And the promises that God makes in their totality are fulfilled in the end. That is, from your perspective, my perspective, because we have all 66 books of the Bible when Christ comes back. Now, here's the, here's the real big point I want you to, to really grasp from that little phrase that he uses, because many of the things that he's about to talk about with these sons are messianic. Do you know what I mean by messianic? Referring to the Messiah. Referring to the one whom the New Testament, when we open the books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, declare it's Jesus. And that's especially true as we look at Judah. Now, one of, the, one of the key axioms of the Bible is that how you develop your character, your habits, your patterns, 
of living are passed on to your children. And so what you see here is something that's rather central to God's economy of things. How you live, the choices you make, the patterns of your life are going to be seen in your children. And only God can break that if they're negative or nefarious. And so what you see in each one of these sons are characteristics that you will see in their children. You saw that when way back when we were in Noah with Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Remember what Ham uh, did to his father, Joseph, uh, to, uh, Noah? And then God said, what I see in Ham, I will see also in Canaan. And the son of Ham, Canaan, uh, bears all the evidence of the, the terrible, terrible choices and character traits of, of, of Ham. So what you see here is the things that you see in each one of these sons, you see in their descendants. The other thing about this very detailed chapter, there's a lot of poetry and metaphors and figures of speech as Jacob gives out these blessings, is some are very short and almost only one sentence, and others are more significant. So the ones that really get emphasis are Reuben, Simeon and Levi, Judah, and Joseph. They're the four major blessings. Then the others like Naphtali and Zebulun and Issachar are very short, very pithy. And it's just, you could, oh goodness, what is it really saying? So what I want to try to do is just capture a little fragment of each one of these relatively minor blessings, like Zebulun and Issachar and Naphtali and Dan and Gad and so on, and really stress Reuben, Simeon and Levi, Judah especially, and then Joseph. Because each one of these is a statement, it's a blessing that is fulfilled as you watch the rest of the Old Testament, and actually, especially with Judah, as we transition into the New Testament. Now, I made a lot of introductory comments there. Did I lose you, or are are you with me? These are the blessings that the patriarch of the family is now dispensing to the the children of 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 his life, the 12 children. That he has, uh, that he is born. Does, Please, does, does Jacob sort of takes uh, Joseph's sons as his own, doesn't he? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And that's what the end of chapter forty-eight was about. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> the blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh have already been dispensed. You understand what I mean? That's what we read last time. Now he focuses on the, his sons, the remaining sons, if you will. And it's, it's a fascinating um, set of blessings. The other thing that I want to say by way of introduction is remember the promise that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob is the promise of land, seed, and blessing, right? Remember that? That blessing, that's consistent. And that is throughout the rest of the scriptures. And so another way of looking at this, which I think is important, is each one of these sons, in one way or another, will share in that three-part blessing. And that's what Jacob is doing. In some cases, like where there's just like one or two sentences of blessing, like Naphtali and Zebulun or Gad. It's about what they do in the land. What contribution will they make when they're in the land after the conquest? Others, like Simeon and Levi, and particularly Judah, it has a much greater emphasis on the blessing and seed aspect of the promise God made to Abraham. Now, are you still with me? Because if you don't kind of get this, what is really going on here, you miss the real point of this blessing. We don't do this kind of thing, typically. I mean, I doubt, I don't know your families, any of you really, but I doubt you ever gather your children or grandchildren together 
and put your hand on your heads, and each one of them gave a long, detailed blessing. Maybe you did, but if you did, you're very unusual. We don't do that, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, and to an extent still in some of the Asian world and among the tribal cultures of the Middle East today, this is still done, where the patriarch gives a blessing. We gather for Christmas to watch television football games, not to give blessings when we get all together. I don't mean that cynically. I'm just saying this is just something that's very foreign to us. But this is a very, this is a very common, normal thing in the ancient world. It still is in some of the tribal cultures of our world today, where the patriarch blesses the family. And usually, because typically the patriarchal type of clans, the men of the clan. This is on the days to come. I'm going to tell you. And they would have had to have some faith in his life and in his statement, wouldn't they, Jim, to, to believe this? Because he's not only saying that um, this is an inheritance, I'm going to bless you, but this is, he describes some of the future events. That's right. And so what... Was there a history there that would cause these children? I mean, if we walked into a room and our father said that to us, we'd go, maybe he's losing it. But here, they t- do they take this seriously because of what they've seen in Jacob's life then? Or how do you... How do you well, I, I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot in your question. I mean, um, first of all, this... I want to say that again, this is not an uncommon thing to happen in the ancient Near Eastern world for the patriarch to bless. So that he gathers them for that purpose is not something strange to them. However, what I think is the real point of your question, do they believe and trust in what he's saying? And do they see in their father the trustworthy role of a patriarch who has walked with God? And the answer is a yes. Yes, I think they do. As a matter of fact, I know they do. And um, as as with each one of these sons, there is an enormous aspect of the grace of God. Because whatever blessing God is going to dispense through Jacob to these sons, not one of them deserves it. Not one of them deserves this. But Jacob didn't deserve it either. Neither did Isaac. And so it's, it's grace. God has chosen this clan, started with Abraham, then Isaac, now Jacob and his 12, this clan to be the channel of his blessing. Why did he choose? The Bible doesn't tell us, but he chose. And so God is continuing now to work out his plan of blessing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we're at the next stage of that development. All right, so let's start. And again, when the phrase in the days to come or the latter days or the last days, this is a prophetic kind of oracle that God is laying down through Jacob, the patriarch of the clan. The first one is Reuben. Now Reuben, it's, I'm going to read it. I'm reading from the ESV, so there may be a little bit of difference But for the most part, this should all be pretty similar to what you have. In the charts that I gave you, you have, this is kind of how you should look at it. This is a summary of the blessing. This one gives you the order in which the sons were born and their mother. Because remember, there's Leah and there is Rachel, the two wives of Jacob. But then each one had a servant girl whom Jacob had sexual relations with and had children too. And it gives you then the reference to their birth, uh, the symbol of their blessing, which is in the blessing itself, and then the specific reference to blessing. Then this one, there's a lot more information on this one. What this chart does is it tries to encapsulate all aspects of the Old Testament as it refers to the 12 tribes. This final column over here on the chart highlights some of the very significant individuals associated with the respective tribes. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
you don't. Like, for example, here, under in the Judges, like you see, here's Samson. Everybody knows about Samson. Samson was of the tribe of Dan. Or here's, um, oh, it's another famous one. That's, um, well, Gideon, most people have heard of Gideon. Gideon was of the tribe of Manasseh. And then this final column are some of the historical details or events associated with the tribes. Because the 12 tribes of Israel the, are based on the 12 sons of Jacob. And the rest of the history of the Old Testament is framed around these tribes. Following? Yep. Okay. So there's a lot. I've given you a lot. It's for, if you want to study it further, this gives you some additional uh, framework, these charts, to do that additional study. But that's why the Bible is, is uh, I should maybe put it this way, that's why God is revealing this here, because from here on out, the 12 tribes, which become the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, are the framework for understanding the rest of the history. And then you have to ask this question. Which tribe does Messiah come from? Judah. And that's why what is said of Judah in this blessing, this prophetic oracle from Jacob, is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So I want to try to develop all that. All right, here we go. Verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruit of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. That's what the firstborn is. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, you went up to my couch. Referring to what happened in chapter 35. When Reuben defiled the bed of his father, committed adultery. So listen to me. The failure of Reuben's character meant he could not lead. So you are preeminent, Reuben. You are my firstborn, the firstfruits of my body. But because of your failure of character, you will not lead. And that was the problem. That was the challenge. So Reuben, Reuben's land grant will be on the east side of the Jordan River. And we're not going to get into that because that's not the purpose of this. All right. So that's it. You, um, Please. Your mind just astounds me that you can remember all this stuff because I'm having a hard time, you know, putting it all together sometimes. So who did Reuben uh, take to his father's bed? One, one, of, one of the maidservants. Okay. One of the maidservants. From a standpoint of character, it was Reuben that protected Joseph, wasn't it? That's, kept, kept he he was killed. the one that talked the guys out of killing yeah. him, but yeah. putting him into the slavery instead. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. All right, Simeon and Levi. Now, that's very interesting that these two are grouped together. The reason they're grouped together is because of what happened in chapter 34, where after their sister Dinah had been raped, which is in effect what, she, what happened to her, they carried out ruthless, over-the-top violence against those who perpetrated that. So this is what he's referring to. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Go back to chapter 34. What they did in revenge, it was ruthless. It was, it was excessive. Let my soul come not into their counsel, my glory be not joined to their company. For their anger they killed men. Willingness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger for its fierce, and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. The ruthless violence of Simeon and Levi meant they could not lead. They would not be the leaders. And if you go back and look what happens to them, Simeon's land grant will be right in the middle of Judah. And then over the history of Israel, as the Old Testament unfolds, the, relation, uh, the 
the distinctiveness of Simeon is lost, and the Simeon tribe just kind of folds into the rest. Levi, Levi becomes, of course, the center of the priests, and they never get a land grant. They, they reside in the 48 Levitical cities all over Israel. So they never, they, are, they never have political leadership. They are dispersed. They don't get unique, distinctive land grants. Why? Because how they reacted to the rape of Dinah. Over-the-top, excessive violence. Whether this is right or just, or if you think it's not fair, whatever, what Jacob is doing because of this, you will not lead either. So who will lead? The next one, Judah. Um, the second part of verse 7, uh-huh. I will divide them in Jacob. I don't understand that. Okay. Um, remember, um, the term Jacob and then his covenant name Israel becomes the, the title, if you will, of all of the people, the children of Jacob, the children of Israel. And that's all it's saying is, Simeon, I'm going to divide you in Jacob. Sim, uh, um, uh, Levi, I'm going to divide you in Israel. Because remember, Jacob and Israel are interchangeable terms. In other words, you will be scattered throughout the land grants. And that's what happens. Simeon will be so dispersed that it will lose its identity, the, the tribe of, of Simeon. So I know, I know this is hard because unless you've really studied the Old Testament, some of this I'm losing you. I'm trying not to lose you. Because the main point is, why, why doesn't Reuben have all the benefits of the firstborn? Because of what happened in chapter 35. Why don't Simeon and Levi, who are the next, they should know because of what they did in chapter 34. Now Judah. Now remember, we've studied him. We've watched things happen with Judah. Over time, what's been happening? Judah's growing. Judah's changing. Judah's being transformed. Judah's assuming more and more leadership. Despite his character flaw, like with some of the things we saw earlier when he saw that prostitute along the road and decided, remember that? But there's still, this is grace. God is growing and developing. This is what he says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is lions, a lion's cub. And pray, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouches as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. Now, what are we seeing here? Judah is going to lead. Judah will lead like a lion. That's where that phrase starts to appear in the Old Testament and into the New Testament and in the book of Revelation. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is that? It's Jesus. One of the titles that Jesus will have in the New Testament is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Where does that come from? Verse 9. So this is very prophetic. This is a prophetic oracle. Then look at verse 10. Verse 10 is so hugely significant. It is referred to and alluded to a number of times in the Bible. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The scepter, ruler's staff, they are symbols of rule. Symbols of governing. So who will lead? Who will govern? And those phrases, the scepter, the the ruler's staff, they will start to be applied to the Messiah in the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the minor prophets, particularly ones like Amos and Zephaniah and Zechariah, all appeal to these phrases as being messianic phrases. This is speaking prophetically of the Messiah. And that's why it is so clear when you look at the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew 1 and Luke 4, they all make sure it's very, very clear that Jesus comes through Judah. Or another way of saying it, David comes through Judah, and then from uh, David comes, of course, the Messiah. 
So verse 10 is a very, very important verse, both biblically in terms of how it is um, developed and, and, and uh, built on. Do you know what I mean by that? It's built on and, and further information, further revelation just adds to the potency of the state, statement about Judah's descendants. And by the way, I'm going to go down, hopefully not a bunny shall lose you, this verse, verse 10, is, is alluding to another covenant, which will be the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God will make with David. David, I promise, 2 Samuel 7, 16 is the most succinct summary of that. David, I promise you, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal dynasty. And you leave the Old Testament, I don't see that promise being fulfilled. An eternal kingdom, an eternal dynasty, an eternal throne. But the very first thing you see in chapter 1 of, Gen- of, of Matthew is this is the Christ, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. He fulfills the Davidic promises. So that, verse 10 is just a really important verse in these prophetic oracles. Shall it comes to him, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's ruling, messianic, kingdom language. And there's still a clan of 70 people in Goshen. <laughs> but this enormously significant prophecy is now made. And then with that, verse 11 and verse 12 indicate a whole new order of prosperity and growth. Blind, binding his fold of the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice and he washed his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes, his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. A new order. That's how powerful, how prosperous, how significant he will be. This is Judah. But from him will come the descendant that will lead ultimately to the Messiah, to Jesus. Did I lose you there or not? This, this prophecy about Judah is really an important one. The rest of the Old Testament prophecy build on this. Your 70 comment, what was that again, Joe? My what? 70 people. 70, is this representing this group of people here? Right. I mean, it, it, when they're hearing there, is there a clan of 70 people? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you, you're thinking, night, what are they going to rule? But that's what Exodus is all about. Because Exodus, they go from a clan of 70 to a people of 600,000 men, according to the census and numbers, plus women and children, which gets you close to a million and a half, at the most, two million people. That's pretty significant. But when they come out of Egypt, they still don't have land, and they still don't have a constitution. They'll get the constitution at Sinai, and they'll get their land under Joshua. Then they're a nation. Then the 12 tribes get their land. All right. Now the rest, well, not the rest of Joseph is kind of long, but now you have these very short, pithy, kind of epigrammatic type of statements. Zebulun's very short. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, shall be a haven of ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. That's exactly what happened. Zebulun's land grant will be along the very northern coast up in the Mediterranean, as will Asher. Ishakar is a strong donkey, crouching up before the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant of forced labor. Ishakar, will, his land grant is going to be in Galilee, up around the north, but they will never defeat the Canaanites. And the descendants of Ishakar will serve the Canaanites. It will say of the Ishakar... And, the, and they dwelt among the Canaanites. Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. Stop there. Verse 18 needs to be dealt with in, uh, in, in, in its own uh, value. What happens to Dan? Dan's land grant is right along the coast near Gaza today, the Gaza Strip. And they don't like that land grant. And they start causing all kinds of problems. 
And so what Dan does is Dan relocates all the way up to the north, way up to the north. Dan is always causing problems. They're always like the serpent that bites the horses of the heels. They're always causing trouble. Let me tell you a little story. The Danites, the Danites are in the Shephelah, the lowlands right before you get to the hills of Judah. So when the Philistines have to go in and raid Judah, they first go through Dan. So Dan is always, always causing problems. They're always under the siege of the Philistines or somebody else. So what happens? They decide to relocate way up north. Now we're going to be safe. Now we're going to be secure. And every invasion of Israel from then on out comes through the north. <laughs> so Dan, I mean, Dan, Dan is always a thorn in everybody's side, always causing problems. And Samson is a Danite. Samson comes from the tribe of Dan. So it's just, it's an interesting prophetic oracle about what will happen to this fairly small tribe. Verse 18 is a prayer. And most expositors think that little prayer should kind of just be in the middle of this oracle. I wait for your salvation, Yahweh. I'm praying for all of my sons, for their deliverance, for your care of them, for your protection of them. It's like right in the middle. It's not just a prayer for Dan, most expositors think. It's in the middle. It's a prayer for all his boys. I wait for your salvation, Yahweh. You've got to take care of my boys. Raiders, verse 19, shall raid Gad, and he shall raid at their heels. Now, that's all. What happens to Gad? Well, again, you, um, you don't know all this yet, and it isn't that important, I guess. But Dad will, Gad will get their land grant on the east side of the Jordan River, and they will constantly, constantly be invaded from the east. Constantly. So always, they become warriors. They become raiders. They're, it's a very unstable region for them. Then Asher, the next verse, verse 20, Asher also is up along the coast. Food shall be rich, shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Both Asher and Naphtali, they settle in the rich region of Galilee. Great, great agricultural prosperity. Valley of Jezreel, all that stuff. That's all it's saying. Then the longest of all of the prophetic oracles, <clears throat> excuse me, is Joseph. And that begins in verse 22, goes down through verse 26. Now this is, you know, you know who Joseph is. He's the second to last son of, of, of Jacob, the first son born to Rachel. The second son born to Rachel is Benjamin. Remember? Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. Isn't that true? His brothers, Potiphar, those in prison. But Jacob, sorry, Joseph is healthy, fruitful, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were more agile. Now notice these four titles of God here. And what is in the end of verse 24 and into verse 25 reminds you of the key phrase in the narrative of Joseph. Remember what it was? And the Lord was with Joseph. Remember that? The Lord was with Joseph. Despite all this opposition, what does it say? By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. That's a title of God. There is the shepherd, second name of God. The stone of Israel, third name. By the God of your father who will be your help. By the almighty El Shaddai who will bless you with blessings of heaven from above. So all it's doing, all Jacob is doing in his prophetic oracle is reiterating what we already know. God took care of Joseph. The mighty one, the warrior of Jacob, the shepherd the one who guides and nurtures and cares for, the stone, the rock, 
solid. And then El Shaddai, which you are very familiar with that. The Lord was with Job. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And I want you to notice this. Five times, the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep, blessings of the breast of the womb, blessings of your father are made to be on the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of everlasting. Five times the word blessing is used. Joseph is a channel of God's blessing. And because of Joseph, this little clan will be nurtured in the womb of Egypt and become a mighty nation because of Joseph. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And that's really true. It is absolutely they, they, true. Absolutely they true. Him off and that's right. He was that's exactly right but the Lord was with Joseph and he became the savior of life and in that in that cocoon of Egypt the nation will be born alright yeah please I apologize if you already made reference to this <clears throat> but with that when the nation grows out of Egypt what, what exactly happened with Joseph's tribe and I remember Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, get the land grant. Okay. They, get, they get the double portion that should have been given to Reuben. Mm-hmm. And Joseph then takes his boys and, and, and it receives that blessing from Jacob, which is what we studied okay. in chapter 48. Yeah, exactly. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Joseph doesn't get a land grant. His two boys get the, he get the double portion. Joseph gets the double portion. It goes to his two boys. Uh, later on in history, is there any uh, significance to Joseph's tribe when it comes to the split kingdom? His two sons, Ephraim. Yeah, Ephraim. will become Ephraim will become the powerful center of the northern kingdom. Okay. Judah will become the powerful center of the southern kingdom. That's why once the kingdom divides after Solomon dies, the northern kingdom is sometimes called Ephraim, okay. and the southern kingdom is, of course, Judah. Does yes, that answer your question? You. Okay. Jim. So Ephraim becomes the leader of the northern kingdom. That's right. Which turned away from God. That's right. And yet he's the blessed, he's the one that Jacob chose to bless. That's right. It just seems so inconsistent or odd or something that those kind of things would happen. Um, odd, inconsistent. That's what happens when human sin and rebellion enters into the situation. But in some respects, Jacob was was either responding to how God was informing him about the future of these children, which he didn't really understand himself, or he he understood it, but still did a blessing. He he didn't understand probably, but he was responding to how God spoke to him. I'm not sure, I don't think you could reasonably argue that Jacob understood the full meaning of everything he was saying, if I'm understanding your question. In other words, I don't think he completely understood the full meaning and implications that history will show for each one of these boys. But still, out of Joseph came the tribe of Levi, all of the priests. And the priests uh, uh, out, of, uh, out of Jacob, you mean? Because Levi is Levi isn't related to Joseph. Levi's related to Jacob. Ephraim is from he's Joseph's son. Right? That's correct. Yes. Joseph, Joseph didn't the, the tribe of Levi come? No, 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 no. Levi is a separate son of Jacob. Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Right. Levi is one of the sons, one of the sons of, of uh, uh, Le- Leah. Leah is his his mother, so I'm not sure I'm understanding what you're. When I'm looking at this, uh huh. Got here, Joseph, fruitful bow, priesthood lineage, and rightful heir. So didn't the you would assume that the tribe of Levi came from, or at least the priestly lineage came from. Joseph, through 
Kiefer? Or am I? I'm not quite sure I'm following here. Yes, yes. From from Levi will come. I mean, the I mean Aaron is going to be a Levite, and then the Aaronic priesthood, and then the sons of Aaron are going to divide all the priesthood responsibilities. Um, what does it mean here that Joseph was a priesthood lineage on this chart? Um. What will what will happen from Ephraim is uh, some of the priests that are associated with what Jeroboam will do will come from Ephraim because the Levites will not follow what Jeroboam in the north is doing. So the false priesthood that ultimately does come from Ephraim, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to be... No, 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 that's a great question. I mean, it's absolutely... You're paying attention, you're reading what I give you, and that's good. <laughs> but I am I know this is a lot. I'm dumping an awful lot on you in one hour, and we're down to 12 minutes left. But the, um, the importance of this is, this chapter, is it lays the groundwork for what's going to happen for the rest of the Old Testament. So that from here on out, when you read about Judah, or you read about Ephraim, or you read about Gad, this 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 gives you oh, okay, remember that in the blessings that were stated by uh, by uh, Jacob in chapter forty nine. So yeah, uh, John. Excuse me, I, I'm just looking at a map uh, of the land of the twelve tribes. Good, yeah, yeah very and, good. And uh, it's it's interesting. Benjamin and Dan are just to the north of Judah. That's right. And then you say that Dan moved way north. He will move way north. And so did Ephraim expand then and take over that land, or do you know? By and large, the land grant that is Dan is what the Philistines take over. Oh. Now, what apparently happened, that's a great question. I, I don't want to give you so much detail, I lose you. Some of the Danites do not move up north. Most of them do, but okay. some of them don't. So there's still a little bit of a presence of the Danites there, but for now, the most part, uh, yeah. The borders, I, I may be wrong, but was when Joshua went in, That's right. who decided where the borders were? Was it Joshua? I mean, they were trying to follow what Jacob gave, but it's interesting that uh, Zebulun, right. who was supposed to be by the sea, is not by the sea. You know, Asher's by the sea. Uh, the great sea, but and so there are ways. But in he becomes Zebulun's tribe becomes a major trading tribe okay. along because to access the Mediterranean just a little bit. Okay. Your your initial question: Who decides? There are two things that happen in the Book of Joshua. One, um, Joshua commissions seventy individuals to go throughout the land and survey it and create some of the boundaries. There are all all the boundaries of the tribe basically follow natural boundaries, mountains or rivers or streams and so on. So those borders are laid out by Joseph in response to the research, this 70 people he sends out, and they survey the land. And that's really interesting. Where did they learn how to survey? In Egypt. They were all from Egypt. They learned that from from being in, in slavery in Egypt. So it's really, um, that it is, it is a well- well-documented process of how those land grants were made in the book. Of, it's really exciting to study that stuff. I get excited about it. I know for those of you, it's, yeah, this is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I know. The final one is in verse 27. It's Benjamin. Remember, he is the youngest, the last uh, child of Jacob, the one that was born to Rachel. And Rachel died uh, as a result of that childbirth. Is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Benjamin's going to be a problematic child. Who is the most significant individual to come from Benjamin? Saul. King Saul comes from Benjamin which is really interesting because we read about Judah. The king should come from Judah. That's why it's really interesting that the first king of Israel is not from Judah, but from Benjamin. But as you know, he doesn't last, as you know.
Now, what, what follows is Joseph, strike that, Jacob now will die. And that's what verse 28 through the end of the chapter. What is really important here, I'm not going to read all that, because it kind of repeats the same thing twice. Jacob will pass away, but before he dies, he asks Joseph to do this. Make sure I'm buried in Canaan. Make sure I'm buried in the cave of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. Why does he want to be buried in Canaan? That's where he buried Rachel. Yeah, Egypt isn't the promised land. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. That's not the promised land. That's not the land that God promised to us. I want to be buried in the promised land with my grandfather, my grandmother, my wife, my father. And so what what happens in the beginning of chapter 50 is that Jacob, sorry, Joseph, then embalms his dad and takes him to Canaan. It's really a remarkable story. Man, it's filled with significance. What is on Jacob's mind the last days of his life? The covenant promise God made. Land. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Egypt isn't the promised land. And so Joseph says, I will do that, Dad. And so the first couple of verses of chapter 50, then Jacob fell Sorry, then Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him, kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Remember, Israel's his covenant name. Now, I want you to note something there. It's the physicians who do the embalming. All leaders in ancient Egypt were embalmed by the priests. Why did Joseph not have his father embalmed by the priests? Because Jacob isn't aligned with the priestly cult of ancient Egypt. He's the worshiper of the true one and only God. So it's just instructive that the physicians do this. Forty days were required for it. That's typically how long the embalming process took. But that is how many were acquired for embalming, and the Egyptians, notice this, wept for 70 days. When a pharaoh died, they wept for 72 days. So that gives you an indication how revered Joseph was in Egypt, that when his dad dies, the nation mourns his dad. That's just another indicator of how significant Joseph had become in Egypt. Are you with me? In the ways of weeping were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go, bury your father as as he made you swear. Now notice verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father with him, all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. That is quite a significant group of people. That funeral procession. Now, I don't know if if you want to just look at the map that I gave you several weeks ago. It shows you, now they are in Goshen, they would have taken this road the way of Shur. This is a major international road up into Canaan. And then buried him near Hebron, which is where that cave of Machpelah was. If you, you, it's not good to do that today. But if I could take you to Israel, I'd take you to Hebron, and there's an enormous church built over these, these burial places. Mm-hmm. But it's in Palestinian authority, right? And it's really unstable. I haven't last several times I've gone to Israel. I haven't taken people there. Because the one time we were there, we were parked in front of the church and they some Palestinian kids started throwing stones at the bus. And my friend who's my guide said, Jim, we gotta get out of here. So that was the last time I took people to Hebron. 
As you can see the headlines, Ekman's tour group stoned to death in Hebron or something like that. So. But it's a massive church. It's a massive church that's been built. It's a Christian church built over. So why did the Palestinians revere Abraham? Because Abraham, remember, Ibrahim, as it says in Arabic, he's a major, major prophet in, in Islam. But he's revered, as is Jacob. So anyway... But that's where that's where he takes them, and he buries his dad there. But that that courtier of, of mourners that would have been significant. That's a significant processional. Only their children, their flocks, and herds were left behind, and there went with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, we're not exactly sure where that is. They lamented their very great and grievous lamentation and made mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor, said, this is a grievous mourning of Egyptians. Therefore, they called the place Abel Mitzarim. That's just giving it a name uh, which means a mourning place, the mourning of Egyptians beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. I'm not going to read the rest of it. It just tells you where he buried them. Now, the remaining part of chapter 50 is really, I'd like to get this done. Is it all right if I do this? I've got seven minutes and 31 seconds, so I'd like to take each one of them. When Joseph's brothers, verse 15, saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. It's still on their mind, isn't it? What they'd done to Joseph. And it makes sense. As long as dad's alive, we're okay. But dad's gone now. Now he'll take his revenge. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father, give us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers came and fell down before him, said, Behold, we are your servants. Now here is one of the most significant statements in the whole Bible. Joseph said, Do not fear, for I am in the place of am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for you. God meant it for good. Do you understand the power of that statement? God can take an evil act with evil intentions and bring good out of it. What's the greatest example of that? The crucifixion, the cross, dastardly evil, horrific evil. The intentions of Rome and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Herod and everybody else involved in it was horrible. But God brought righteous good out of it. So, in 2017, can we still say God can do that? Uh-huh. can take evil and bring good out of it. <clears throat> I'm starting this Sunday at my church, my senior pastor's, well, I'm on staff there part-time, but he said, I want, you to do, I want you to do a series of five messages to help people be ready for all of the challenges we now face as this the world is... You know, the whole world order is falling apart and all that, as well as the thing going on in our country. And so I said, okay, Pastor Matt, I'd like to use Habakkuk as the book to do this. So we're going to start this Sunday an exegetical study of the book of Habakkuk. You know, where you had your devotions this morning. Remember that great minor prophet? That's a great little book. Because Habakkuk is a prophet during the time of, of King Josiah. who's a reformed king of Judah. And Habakkuk says, Lord, I don't understand 
This nation is filled with violence. This nation is filled with evil. This nation is filled with everything that goes against you and what you stand for. Why aren't you doing something about it? And God responds, Habakkuk, I am doing something about it. I am going to hold this nation accountable. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And they will be my hand of discipline. Second dialogue. Okay, God, I got it. But you're going to use an unrighteous, evil people to judge your righteous people? That's not justice, God. (laughs) It's just a fascinating dialogue. It's the only prophets like that. He is dialoguing with God. He's asking God questions. And the, 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 the key point is in verse 4 of chapter 2. Habakkuk, you're never going to figure all this out. You're not like me. You don't have the eternal perspective on things. But I'm telling you, Habakkuk, the just live by faith. And that verse is quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament. You can't figure everything out. You can't make sense of everything. Only God can do that. So what's our response? Faith and trust in God. Amen. That God is sovereign. God knows what he's doing. And even monstrous, horrific evil, God can trumpet. Oh, I shouldn't have used the word trumpet. God can overcome it and bring good out of it for his glory. That was a Freudian slip. I didn't. So anyway. But it's a, this verse is... A, to me, verse 20 is one of the most important, of chapter 50, is one of the most important verses in the Bible. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And among other things, what God did is he preserved life, and he will birth his nation, the nation of Israel, in the womb of Egypt, because of Joseph. Had it not been for Joseph, it would never have happened. Well, we'll... we'll We'll transition next week into the book of Exodus. So if you have an opportunity to look at the first chapter of Exodus and either read it or skim it or just look at it, what you see is a population explosion. And then you see a key phrase at the beginning of the book. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And with the population explosion in Goshen, that Pharaoh makes a decision. These people are becoming too numerous. They're a threat to the kingdom. And so he enslaves them. And so your image now from here on out will be Charlton Heston. (laughs) Ten Commandments, remember that? (laughs) In, In Egypt, so anyway. But I hope it'll be, uh, it'll be, I'll close out last, next week just with a brief comment here at the end about what happens to Joseph. What promise does Joseph want his descendants to make? And that is, I want to be buried in Canaan as well. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. And will that be fulfilled? Yes. They will take his bones to Canaan in Exodus chapter 13. Moses will take Joseph to Canaan. Uh, and we'll read about that later. All right. I don't get to say this very often, but we finished another book of the Bible, a 50-chapter book of the Bible. So congratulate yourselves. Don't get puffed up, but just congratulate yourselves. It was a good stu- I hope it was a good study. Lord, we're thankful for our time together this morning as we've, uh, well, we're beginning a new year, but we're finishing a book as we finish the book of, uh, of Genesis. And Lord, at, at, at least as we leave, the main takeaway from uh, today's class, I, I hope can be that extraordinary verse 20 of chapter 50. When Joseph looks his brothers in the eye and says, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. I think so often in, in the inexplicable things that happen in this fallen, broken world, we can't figure it out. So often we have to claim this and by faith, by faith, just internalize and say, Lord, I do not understand what's going on, but I have to trust you. You can take evil, you can take dastardly evil things, horrific things, and still bring good out of it 
the cross is the greatest example of that. And certainly the life of Joseph. If it not been for Joseph, the kingdom of Israel would never have been born. That's where they were birthed as a nation. That's where you continue to fulfill your covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lord, I also pray, as Ed has asked us to pray for Brian and his family, this um, tragedy that happened over the holidays is apparently life-threatening. So our prayer would be um, that, Lord, you would preserve his life, uh, whatever. I don't know the details. I don't know all that's involved, but you know everything about it. We'd ask you to be merciful and gracious. We'd ask you to give the medical people who are ministering to him right now the clear wisdom and discernment of what they can do to save his life. So we're asking you, Lord, for a miracle. We're asking you to do something decisively interventional. But Lord, you are the sovereign Lord of of this universe. You may choose not to do that for some greater purpose, which we cannot understand right now. Lord, help us to approach this with faith and trust in you. But we're asking you for a miracle in this man's life. Be with his family. I don't know if there are children or whatever is involved there, but Lord, give them comfort and strength right now as well. So as we now uh, separate and go our, our different ways, we ask your blessing upon us, your hedge around each one, and help us in this new year and even today in our words and in our deeds to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. 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 See you next week.